Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And before we get into this week's podcast episode, I would just like to ask you for a favour. I mean, I spend quite a bit of time uh, producing these podcasts uh, each week. Uh, I try and make them as uh, considered and thought-provoking as possible. Uh, And because I I made the decision a long time ago not to have guests on the podcast, uh, it's all up to me to come up with this content. Uh, And I very much enjoy doing it, uh, particularly when I receive feedback and hear you know, that that people are enjoying it. So the one favour I have uh, to ask you is if you do enjoy the podcast, uh, please share it. Please share it with your friends, families, colleagues, uh, whoever you think might uh, also enjoy it. Um, And subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts or or leave a rating. rating. Uh, Subscriptions and ratings uh, help in terms of ranking. uh, And, uh, you know, the higher the ranking, the, the more people that enjoy and and benefit from the podcast, which is, you know, one of the reasons that uh, I do it. Okay, so let's get into this week's episode then, uh, which is how to finance a property portfolio. Uh, really, some loan structuring basics. How do you do it? How do you build a multi-property portfolio? Um, and, and what do we consider when um, putting a, a loan structure together? Um, of course, investing in property is a very popular strategy in, in Australia in terms of uh, a way to, to build wealth, um, but often loan structuring can be a bit of an afterthought. Uh, the reality is, though, that the right structure and maximising your borrowing capacity is almost just as important as buying the right property, and uh, that's what I want to discuss today and highlight why I believe that. Uh, so let's get into a bit of a basic example of you know how to structure uh, your loan portfolio. And I will say that there is a video that I posted on the in this blog. It's embedded in the blog uh, on the website. Uh, that's about ten minutes, uh, and it graphically takes people through sort of loan structure. So it doesn't you know it's probably better medium to uh, explain that than than a podcast. Um, but I'll give you a summary here and. Uh, and all I suggest is maybe uh, seek out that video uh, on the website. Uh, so the first step is you need to get access to a deposit. Obviously, if you go out and purchase a property, you're going to have to pay an initial deposit, typically ranging between 5 and 10%, normally 10%. So you have to have some access to some cash. Uh, now, you might have cash savings uh, and so forth that uh, will help you fund that deposit, uh, and that's okay, but typically I always advise clients to borrow the maximum, you know, borrow the full cost of the purchase and then put any monies in a, a linked offset account. Uh, and there's a link in the show notes of, of uh, to another blog of why that's important to do. Uh, in terms of a deposit loan, uh, we want to make that large enough so that we can fund uh, 20% of the purchase price plus all costs and adding a bit of a, a loan buffer. So um, costs are typically going to include legal fees, uh, stamp duty, uh, any buyer's agent's costs, uh, property inspections, uh, in insurance, you know, you've got to pay that typically when you first purchase the property, uh, some building insurance, uh, those sorts of items. Uh, and then a buffer, look, a buffer is there just to provide for 
any unforeseen expenses related to that property in the future. Uh, so, um, and if you're building that buffer, you don't need to worry about, well, what if the hot water service blows up or, you know, what if I need to make some repairs to the roof or something like those sorts of items that can start to really add up. Uh, so I typically advise somewhere between twenty-five and $75,000 as a bit of a loan buffer. Uh, you don't draw the monies, you don't pay interest on the monies, but at least you know that they're always there. So that's that's the deposit loan, and the deposit loan should be established before you obviously go out and purchase. The second step is then to arrange a pre-approval for the 80% loan. So obviously we're going to fund 20% from the deposit loan and the remaining 80% of the purchase price uh, from uh, the 80% loan. Uh, and that loan will be secured solely by the investment property itself, whereas the deposit loan will be secured by any existing property. And typically that's a, a, a client's home or could be a holiday house, could be an investment property, whatever it is, but it's a different property than the one that the new one that you're contemplating uh, buying. Uh, that 80% loan will need to be pre-approved before you obviously go out and, and buy. Uh, and that obviously can be with any lender. You know, normally um, to avoid a, a refinance or complicating matters, um, quite often we might arrange the deposit loan with the client's existing lender, you know, particularly if they've got transactional banking there and so forth. Um, but the 80% loan can really be with any lender. We can really choose based on, you know, um, credit criteria, so borrowing capacity or fixed rates or whatever criteria might be important. Uh, and so uh, let's assume then you've gone out and purchased the property, you funded 20% plus costs from the deposit loan, you funded the remaining 80% from the 80% loan. In time, um, and typically when the property's value is uh, appreciated by somewhere between 35 and 40%, um, you know, based on its uh, purchase price, uh, which could take, you know, five to seven years. I mean, depending on market conditions, it can be uh, quicker or, or longer than that. Um, you, the, net, the final step, step number three, is to consolidate the deposit loan and the 80% loan. Uh, and uh, so that means that you then have one loan that's secured by uh, the investment property itself, uh, and you don't need any other security. So, for example, you know you can release the home as security, and perhaps if you've repaid your home loan, uh, that property can remain unencumbered, uh, and then it's just neatly one loan against the investment property, and it's all very clean uh, and standalone. The reason why we structure it um, in this way, so to sort of do it in two steps, the 20% loan plus costs and then and then consolidate is to avoid cross securitization and uh, I have recorded a podcast uh, purely just on this subject or well I mean there was a few other things in there as well uh, and I've got a link uh, in the blog and the show notes to that uh, that, that that blog so uh, if you want to find out more about cross securitization and why I don't uh, I recommend avoiding it uh, certainly check out that blog now, if you want to um, purchase a number of properties, uh, well, it's as simple as um, making sure that deposit loan uh, was is large enough to fund, you know, wh whatever your intention is. So it's okay to fund uh, multiple deposits for multiple properties out of that one loan. Uh, make sure you keep really good records in terms of, you know, what, what amount is used for which properties. Uh, and typically, I keep a spreadsheet uh, when I'm acquiring a property, keep a spreadsheet of all the acquisition costs uh, and just fill that spreadsheet out as I pay them. Because uh, to go back uh, in a few years' time, uh, it's not going to be that clear. 
Um, at least uh, I know my memory is not that great. Uh, if I think about what happened five years ago or whatever, it's just much easier to keep a spreadsheet. Um, and then that way you can um, uh, very clearly um, uh, articulate or prove uh, what part of that loan relates to what property. Um, in terms of some current considerations, so what, how are we structuring the deposit loan and the 80% loan today? I, I just wanted to sort of talk a little bit about that. So in respect to the deposit loan, uh, typically we would have that on a variable rate um, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, we like to um, consider setting up before the client uh, goes and purchases the property. Uh, so we don't want to draw the loan or at least we want to have an offset account which we can put the funds into uh, so the client doesn't pay interest because obviously if I'm looking for a property today, I might not buy one for six months. I don't want to be paying interest on that loan uh, between now and then. Uh, we would consider um, principal interest repayments on that deposit loan. Um, it, it would really depend on the client's situation and whether they had any material non-deductible debt. Um, but the reason to perhaps consider uh, principal interest repayments is that the loan amount is relatively small, you know, 20% plus costs. So it's not really um, committing ourselves to repaying a lot of principal. Um, but interest rates for loans that have principal interest repayments rather than interest only uh, are lower. So a little bit of interest uh, saving there. Um, and we'd make sure that the loan had a redraw feature um, so that we could uh, repay any excess funds uh, back into loan to reduce the balance. Um, but know that we can access that. And that's the buffer that I was talking about um, previously. For the 80% loan, uh, almost always we're, we're choosing fixed rates at the moment. Uh, so somewhere between uh, two, three or four or five years in terms of a fixed rate term. Uh, and the reason for that is that um, fixed rates tend to be lower than variable rates at the moment, uh, particularly for interest-only investment loans. Uh, we would typically have the 80% loan on interest only uh, because if we've got the deposit loan on principal interest, we can repay that or offset that debt first um, before we even consider um, needing or wanting to uh, offset or repay the 80% loan. Um, and uh, you don't really need an offset against that 80% loan if you've got the offset against the deposit loan. Now, to finish off, what I'd like to do is just share a couple of bits of advice, uh, if I may. Uh, something that I've learnt uh, as an investor myself, of course, uh, and advising uh, property investors over almost the last 20 years. No wonder I feel tired. Um, and the first one is that uh, I don't think successful investors care much about interest rates. And it might seem a little bit of a perverse thing to say. That's not to say um, pay whatever rate you know uh, the bank asks you to pay. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but but I think uh, because of course borrowing costs and and that's rates, uh, interest rates and fees are important. Um, but I think successful investors realise that the number one thing um, uh, is maximising your borrowing capacity in a safe and prudent manner, of course. Uh, and uh, that that is uh, nearly nine times more important than uh, than interest rates, and that's very specific. So I'll get into that example in a second. Um, so there's two benefits of having a higher borrowing capacity. The first one is that uh, you'll be able to invest in a higher quality asset. So for example, if my borrowing capacity is a million dollars with lender A, or uh, 1.3 with lender B. Uh, the difference between a million dollars and a one and one point three in many markets is significant. So that extra three hundred thousand dollars, I mean, it's a it's a large sum of money, of course, but in the whole scheme of things, 
that extra $300,000 could get you a much, much better property or at least a property with far fewer compromises than if you had to stick to the million dollar budget. Now, assuming it's safe and prudent for you to borrow the 1.3, then even if that lender B charges a slightly higher interest rate, you get yourself a better quality property, it's going to benefit you in the long run. The second benefit might be that you're able then to acquire multiple assets if that's your plan. So um, if lender A only allows you to buy one investment property, but lender B allows you, because of their borrowing capacity, to, to acquire two investment properties, well, um, as long as you're buying the right assets, of course, uh, that lender B is going to help you make a lot more money in the long run uh, than what lender A will. So if you look at the numbers then, um, I worked out that if you paid half a percent more um, in interest on a million dollar loan, that in today's dollars on an after-tax basis over the next 20 years, that half a percent higher interest rate is going to cost you $53,000. And the mortgage market is pretty competitive, right? So it's probably unlikely you're going to have to pay more than half a percent. So I'm being um, conservative here, but you know, interest rate differentials uh, typically are, are pretty minuscule uh, between lender A, B, C and D, for example. Um, whereas if you uh, borrow that million dollars, pay an extra half a percent, um, but are able then to generate a 1% higher capital growth rate. So say instead of getting 7%, you get 8% because you're able to buy a better quality asset. Uh, well, I worked out over a 20-year period on an after-tax basis, so after you pay capital gains tax, uh, that's going to help you generate $450,000 more in wealth. So you've spent 53000 on interest to generate more than uh, $450,000 in wealth. That's eight and a half times, nearly nine times uh, more wealth um, uh, or, or return on investment is probably the best way to say that. So that's why maximizing your borrowing capacity is far, far more important than minimizing your interest rate. Now, if you can do both, of course, that's great, but never, ever, ever, ever compromise on uh, being able to maximize your borrowing capacity. And this is where I think a lot of investors make mistakes. They get so focused on interest rates because we're being conditioned to you know, ask for a better rate, get a better deal, all those sorts of things. Um, but really, the, the key success factor here is really borrowing capacity. The next tip I wanted to share was really about loyalty. Um, and personally, I think loyalty is a, a very important quality in life. Um, but it's not so when it comes to banks and lenders. Uh, so uh, being loyal to your bank is one thing, but you know you could be missing out on a lot of opportunities. Now, let's be honest with each other. Refinancing is a massive pain in the neck. You know, anyone that's gone through a loan application over the last five years will know how painful it can be, how long it takes, how many questions there are, how many times uh, often lenders ask for exactly the same information on multiple occasions. You know, uh, that really irks me. Um, but the reality is that lenders change over time. Their appetites change, their credit policy changes, their interest rates change. So whilst lender A might be great for you today, that's not, there's, there's nothing to suggest that lender A is going to be um, equally best for you in three years' time. And I find, I have found, uh, not through design, but just through circumstances, that I tend to refinance every two to five years. Now, I don't plan to do so, of course, but I'm very open to refinancing. I know that sometimes that's a... 
um, uh, a cost of doing business. And when I say cost, obviously refinancing doesn't really cost anything in dollar terms, um, but just in terms of administration and time and all those sorts of things. So I'm not suggesting that you should um, plan to refinance every so often, but just be prepared that if you're a property investor and you're building a property portfolio, that a refinance during that acquisition period uh, every so often may be necessary because not because you chose the wrong lender five years ago or three years ago, but because lend, the lending landscape really does change. And my final tip is really about engaging a very, very experienced mortgage broker. Now, I have to um, register my conflict of interest here. Of course, uh, you know, I started ProSolution back in 2002 and we started purely as a mortgage broker um, uh, and I was doing the mortgage broking back then. Um, so, of course, I have a vested interest in saying, you know, everyone should have a good mortgage broker. Um, but what I'm not saying, what I'm saying here is not you, you need to come to ProSolution for your mortgage broking, but really that how an experienced mortgage broker can help you on that property investment journey. And apart from um, making sure you structure your loans correctly so that you're maximising your tax benefits and opportunity costs and those sorts of things, I, there's three other things that I've thought about um, uh, that I think a really good experienced mortgage broker can help you with. The first one is their knowledge and experience. You know, the, the lending landscape is very dynamic. It's, 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 it's really amazing. It's probably the most dynamic out of, you know, if I think about financial planning and tax and mortgage broking, I think a lot more changes in mortgage broking than it does in tax and, and financial planning. Um, and that could be credit policy, interest rates, laws, regulations, credit appetite, um, and uh, that means that your experience or mortgage broker's experience be can become outdated very quickly. You know, if, if you haven't been in the lending business for three years, you may as well have been out of it for 30 years because things change so much. So a really good mortgage broker will help you navigate these risks and opportunities because sometimes these changes create opportunities and sometimes they create risks for an investor. And so you really need someone that really understands the landscape, understands credit, uh, and they can go in and bat for you and represent your best interests uh, with those circumstances. If you have a broker that's not on top of things, um, then uh, then that's a risk to you as an investor because things are changing so quickly. Uh, secondly, um, whilst applications are neither enjoyable or instantaneous, in fact, quite often they're laborious and long-winded, <laughs> uh, uh, the reality is a good, organised, systemized. Uh, mortgage broker will save you a heap of time. Um, you know, answering stupid questions from lenders, um, following up uh, matters to to ensure you know um, delays don't uh, occur, uh, li liaising with other providers like your conveyancer or your accountant and so forth. There's so much involved um, in uh, getting a loan to settle these days that if you tried to do it all yourself, and I appreciate a lot of. Uh, clients and customers wouldn't really understand the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes, um, uh, but it's not as simple as just completing an application form and giving it to the lender. There's a lot of moving parts. And if you wanted to run that all yourself, um, good luck, uh, but it's almost a full-time job. So uh, saving time uh, is, a, is a really important aspect. And the last one, and, and I'm going to almost contradict myself here, but I'm not, um, it's really about proactive repricing of loans. So there's a, a really good chart, and I've got a link in the show notes, that the RBA puts together every month. 
um, that, that looks at variable interest rates to existing borrowers and new borrowers. And obviously new borrowers are being offered much better or much lower interest rates uh, to attract that new business. So it's really important then that um, as mortgage brokers, we go and proactively reprice uh, existing debt at lenders to make sure they're getting the best uh, interest rate discount. Now, it's not about having the lowest rate, but it's about making sure you've got the maximum borrowing capacity. And then once you've got that borrowing capacity, then trying to reduce that rate, right? So I'm not being too rate focused here, but of course, no one wants to pay any more than they have to. Uh, and in fact, our firm, uh, ProSolution, we're implementing a technology tool um, that uses an algorithm that's going to trawl all over our client loans and automatically apply for higher discounts um, uh, when they're available at their incumbent lender. And uh, it all happens automatically behind the scenes. Uh, if something needs to be signed by the client, it'll send that uh, off to the client to sign electronically via uh, email um, and the whole process is automated. Um, and this is, I think, where the industry is heading to make sure that we've got the tools, um, the most appropriate tools, uh, to make sure our clients are really being looked after. Okay, now let me sum it all up but with a quote by uh, investor and educator Michael Yardney. Um, and he says, property investment is a game of finance with some houses thrown in the middle. Uh, and I agree, it really is more a game of finance than it is a game of property. Um, and for you to be able to master that game, obviously you need to have the right advice uh, and you need to have the right information to learn how to sort of play that game, if you like, and play that game to your advantage. And so here's a shameless plug. Uh, last year I wrote a book called Rules of the Lending Game. Um, so if you want to learn more about loan structuring and and learning how to play the game, uh, you can buy a copy of that book, Rules of the Lending Game, off the website, my website, ProSolution. Um, if you use the uh, code, the discount code BLOG, B-L-O-G, of course, um, uh, that will discount the book to $20, no postage, uh, and we'll send that out to you. Uh, we use Aussie Post, so uh, you, you've probably seen the news. Uh, they're running behind, so please allow um, one to two weeks for delivery. Um, it, we all know what Aussie Post is like. Okay, that's it for me for this week. Uh, until next week, bye for now.